I would love to have you take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and the sermon notes in your bulletin. You will want those today. Today is going to be a little bit of a different journey in the text. Uh, I'll define all that in just a couple of minutes. It's, it's just a little bit of a, a different approach, different style than what you ordinarily can expect from me. But I, I think to a good end and um, looking forward to our time here. I would like to pray for us and we'll We'll jump into our text here in a moment, all right? Would you join me in this, please? Now, Father, as I think about the people who have joined us throughout the morning and those in the room now, we we come from such different circumstances of life and areas of need and areas of struggle and areas of joy and success. And I I thank you that you can can take our, our time together, time in your word and time in praying and time in singing, all of these elements of worship. And you can encourage and stir people's hearts whatever the area of need or circumstance today. Thank you that you'll do that even today as we look at a very specific topic in a very small text that that you would use your word to encourage us and to point us to Christ. So do that is our prayer in Jesus' name, amen. So you come to 2 Corinthians 12, and it is very evident that we are nearing the end of the book. We've been routinely, as we normally do, working our way through a a book in the Bible. That's kind of our bread and butter. Uh, This case, a letter, the letter of of Paul to the Corinthian church, and just looking at it portion by portion as to what it has to say to us. Very soon, of course, we'll come to the end of that. July 2nd, we will begin a 10-week theologically driven sermon, pastorally preached, that will look at 10 theological, 10 doctrinal points, and all under the heading, we believe. We believe what? And there will be 10 of those, okay? So that's what's going to take place starting July 2nd. So we're just on our way to wrap up our study in 2 Corinthians. And uh, I've got a couple of things here on your sermon notes by way of reminder, and that'll work our way to today's text. But I'm wanting under the review section to remind you of a couple of things. First of all, uh, the reminder several weeks ago, we talked about the importance of both grace and truth being wed as part of the life of a church and part of the life of a Christian living faithfully in this world. Jesus is described in the Gospel of John as being full of grace and truth, both of those together. And you remember when we preached that particular sermon a couple weeks ago, we talked about how uh, whether it's an individual Christian or a church, if you if you become unhinged from the other, grace and truth. All kinds of bad things can happen. If you can so be wrapped up with grace and disconnected from truth, you can end up embracing all kinds of things that are a betrayal of biblical Christianity. But you're full of grace. Conversely, if you're all connected with truth and you skip grace, you may be right on a whole bunch of other things, but you, you're, you're like a, a hammer. We're around smacking people. You can do all kinds of damage. You may be right. Oh, you're right. But unhinged from grace. And so just like Jesus was full of both grace and truth, so we too want to be part of both. Wed grace and truth together to to characterize the life of a church and our life as individual Christians. Really important. And it continues, of course. Now, last week in the first part of 2 Corinthians 12, okay, I just reference it here by way of reminder. We looked at this section where there are described here by Paul, visions and revelations of the Lord. And I'm mentioning here by way of reminder, we'll read that in a moment, uh, once again, Paul, 
was a, I call it, a capital A apostle, part of a unique group of people back in apostolic times, New Testament times, who spoke with the authority that comes only from God. So he was in a unique group of people. So visions and revelations he talks about, but that wasn't his normal sermon. It really wasn't. Uh, Paul very rarely talked about those amazing experiences with God because the main point that he wanted to speak about was Jesus, who died on the cross in our place, rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, coming again. He made, wanted to make sure that Jesus was the main point of the message, not cool experiences he had with God. Okay, so that was our text last week. We come today, as you again, sermon notes, there's a little paragraph called today's text that, that just to let you know where we're going, we're going to be speaking about this issue of apostolic authority and by implication our understanding of the authority of scripture. That's where the bus today is going. Okay, there are going to be some other details. Today's sermon approach is a little more Bible study oriented. You might say that it was kind of like going to Bible college or seminary. Yeah, kind of a little more that direction today. Okay, don't always preach that way, but today that's what it is. So heads up, but the goal, the, 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 the bus stop where we're heading, I want, I want to remind us with great joy that our authority is the word of God, that when the Bible speaks, God speaks. And you can take this to the bank. That's, that's the target today. All right? So uh, along the way, that's, that's the deal. Now, you see here then, I want to read last week's text, which is chapter 12, 1 through 10, just to get a, a sense of the movement. And then we'll come to our main text, three verses, 11, 12, and 13. And I'll say some things about that. So I'll deal with the text, and then I want to talk a little more as a theological presentation. Again, a little different. Uh, as you'll see. But I want to read the text then, God's word, 2 Corinthians 12, starting at verse 1, this section that Paul calls boasting. He's, he's tooting his own horn, so to speak, as much as he dislikes it. So we read this. I must go on boasting, though there's nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, by the way, we defined some of these things last week's sermon. If you missed it, you can pick it up in the back or find it online. What in the world is the third heaven? We addressed it last week. He says, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter on behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses, though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I'd be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, as we noted last week, aha, Paul, so you were talking about yourself. Ah, he says, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. God cared about his character. Three times, he says, I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. 
Okay, then moving to today's text, kind of a conclusion to that, that line of reasoning. He says, I've been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to, those, to these super apostles, you can picture the air quotes, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. You can sense the biting sarcasm at the end of that. That's what's intended. Irony, we say, because we don't like to think of Paul using sarcasm, but he does, okay? Forgive me this wrong. Okay, I want to say a word, first of all, about verses 11 to 13, because I think the thought represented in each of those is fairly simple. And then I want to dial in on really the main points coming from verse 12, Okay, so as you, as you look at this, uh, what Paul is doing is he, is he is reminding the folks to whom he's writing, look, I've been defending myself, but, but you should have been. That's the point. You should have been. Paul could say, I was the one who was the church planter of you. Some of y'all came to Christ as I preached. And you know me, Paul could say, I lived there for 18 months and did ministry with you. You know me as an apostle. Paul, your friend, come on. So when some people are undermining me and stabbing me in the back and trying to say I'm really not that much, it was crickets on your end. And you all should have defended me. And you didn't. So that's why I've had to do this, defend myself. That's kind of the idea in verse 11. Okay, these super apostles. By that he means these other guys who were coming in to say, ah, we're just as important as Paul. We speak for God just as much as Paul does. So uh, Paul's not that great of a speaker. We're better speakers. So there's all of that going on as we've defined it. Now you come to verse 13. Uh, Again, Paul has mentioned earlier in this same letter that when he came, he came for free. Meaning when he came and spoke to the folks at Corinth, He was being supported by other people, so he wasn't a high-priced speaker. And you remember my reference to that that really, really dumb commercial that says, oh, they're giving it away free, it must be good, that logic often fails people, being gentle. Logic often fails people. Well, so perhaps, I think if you read between the texts, and you can, I, I think I understand it this way, that maybe some of these other guys came with big speaking fees, and then Paul came for free, And people tended to say, well, that guy came with a big speaking fee. He must know what he's talking about. And then there's this other guy who speaks for nothing. What does he know? I think that's the idea. So Paul's saying, I I didn't come with a speaking fee, didn't pass a plate for my support. Sorry. Next time I'll sell tickets. And maybe it'll go better. I think that's the the biting sarcasm part in verse 13. But I don't think those are, uh, well, they explain the text. I don't think they're the main, the main issue for us today. So verse 12 is, is really what I want to drill into today. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience with signs and wonders and mighty works. And you see my sermon title for the morning is taken from that. The signs of a true apostle. What do you mean by this? I take by that statement that there were signs of a true apostle. Otherwise, the verse makes no sense. There were signs of a true apostle. Some things that should have been signals, big road signs, he speaks for God. So apostolic authority, to use a more technical phrase, apostolic uniqueness, 
He spoke for God. So these are things that I want to, to address. And again, I'll invite you to come with me as I do this really in a, what I'm going to say is a crash course way. So much more can be said. I've really uh, chopped it down here. But under this first heading then, New Testament apostles spoke and wrote with God's authority. That's a really big deal. So that what you have in the Bible, written by a large part of it, those, those uh, initial apostles, you would say, they spoke and wrote with God's authority. Uh, he, of course, as I mentioned already, one of the, the founder of that local church, he has suffered a lot on behalf of the gospel. Apostles and prophets, second bullet point, foundational to the New Testament church. Okay? Now, I'm going to go to four texts. These are four of many that we could go to to try to establish the same point. But I'd love to have you, you come with me. If you'd like to, uh, turn with me. I've given these texts to you. You can stay right where you're out there in 2 Corinthians if you'd like. But, but uh, I'll invite you if you'd like to do more of the Bible study part. Acts chapter 1. And I want to just read several texts and, and draw out a couple of things that I think uh, are, are fairly easy to see. But I want you to see them in the Bible. I'm not the authority. God's word. So, book of Acts, chapter 1, and of course, context, Christ has just ascended to heaven, and this group of about 120 disciples are hanging out in this upper room, waiting for what Jesus said, waiting for this new coming of the promised Holy Spirit in a whole new way. So, they're waiting in this upper room, and they've got a missing, they've got a missing person. They've got one of the apostles' chairs empty, and it's because of Judas. Remember him? Yeah, bad guy Judas, the betrayer. So they went into this whole latter part of Jesus' life with 12 in that apostolic group. They were named apostles, called by Jesus, and Judas uh, left. We'll see this in the text. I want to start reading chapter 1, verse 15. Okay, a few comments along the way here. Hear God's word then as as I read this. So in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. A company of persons was in all about 120 and said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Now he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now there's a parenthetical for, uh, section, two verses. I think Luke adds this. Luke is writing Acts. So now this is Luke speaking, kind of a parenthesis to explain. Now this man, that's Judas, acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. That's the money he got for betraying Jesus. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. Can I get an amen? Uh, Right, that's your memory verse for the day. I realize you're going to probably put that on your refrigerator and say, what'd you learn at church? Well, it was Acts chapter 1, verse 18, Mom. That's what I memorized. I'm kidding, of course, but it's there in the text. That's what's going on. And it became known, it says, to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Hakaldama, that is, field of blood. So that's a, a, a parenthetical explanation from Luke. Now we're back to Peter's voice, who says, for it was written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, speaking of Judas, let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another's take his office. It doesn't mean his corner office on the fourth floor. It means his specific role. So he says, one of the men who've accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with, from the baptism of John till the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a, a witness to his resurrection. They put forward to Joseph called Barsabbas, also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you've chosen to take the place in this 
ministry and apostleship. Please notice the words. In this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place and they cast lots for them and the lot fell on Matthias and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. I'm wanting to point out from this text that there were 120 who were followers of Jesus in this upper room or in this, in this, in this meeting place. Now, of that larger number, all of whom were followers of Jesus, there's a smaller group called apostles. So all the disciples are not called apostles. There's a specific group numbered here as 11 plus Matthias. That would be 12. There were 12 in a unique role called by God. And I was going to demonstrate here, I think, uh, given specific authority. You find the term apostles used in the, in the gospels as well. The disciples were also called apostles. They were sent ones. And I'm suggesting, I uh, believe it strongly, there's a certain group, a limited group not a group that continues on. I do not believe that the Bible demonstrates apostolic succession. I think there was a unique group called apostles. Now the term, uh, as you've heard me say, the term is sometimes used of others who were sent on tasks. I call that small a apostles. But there's capital A, a specific group that was part of the founding of the church. That's what I would suggest to you. Those 12 plus Paul. So now, I want to move then. Uh, you could stop a, a lot of places in the book of Acts on this, but I want to shoot right ahead to the Apostle Paul. So 1 Corinthians 9, 1 and 2, you see my, my, my list there of places I want to go uh, under this heading. New Testament apostles spoke and wrote with God's authority. So 1 Corinthians 9 then, starting verse 1, Paul now, having met with Christ on the road to Damascus, specifically called to be an apostle. So here he says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Uh, That's very reminiscent of Acts 1 and the qualifiers for Matthias. Have I not seen Christ Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal or the mark of my apostleship in the Lord. Paul identifies himself as an apostle, as one in a unique group, and he does this, listen, again and again and again. He calls himself an an apostle, and he uses that as a designation to differentiate himself from other followers of Jesus. Now, he doesn't do that because he's so arrogant, or he took it on himself, he didn't apply for this job, that's not the point. God called him in that role. Road to Damascus was the beginning of that, as we referenced some in the last week or so. So Paul identifies himself in this role as apostle. I want to go to Ephesians, just following right along there. I want to go to Ephesians 1, and this is this text, chapter 1, verse 1, is one example. And if you're a Bible study-oriented person, which I hope all of you on some level are, because if the Bible's going to be your authority for your life and your faith, you might want to know what it says. Amen? So you, we should all be people who read and take the Bible seriously, study it on some level. So here, Ephesians 1 is one example of how Paul identifies himself. You could go to all of Paul's letters. You, this would be your Bible study task. And look at the, how he starts. How does he identify himself? He does it very carefully. So here, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. No, he didn't turn in a resume. He wasn't voted into this position. He, was, he is identified as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, he says it very similarly in some of the other letters. I'll just give you a heads up. 
Sometimes he'll talk about Timothy with him, but he will say, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. He will not say, Paul and Timothy, apostles. He's very careful about where he places that role. I'm making a point of this for a reason. Paul doesn't just throw that around. He'll say, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints. He's drawing a difference between himself as an apostle in this special group and others who are wonderful people. But he's saying there's a unique group. So here, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, you read all of his epistles, read the beginning, and you'll see exactly what I mean. Now, here in Ephesians, I'm not done. I want to go to chapter 2. Giving you the, the, the text here. Ephesians 2, I want to go to this because I want you to see some of the reason for apostles, this unique group, okay? In the New Testament, starting in the book of Acts, you find God doing something new. This is called the church. So in the Old Testament time, God was working through the nation of Israel. And if you were going to be a faithful follower of the God of the Bible, you kind of joined that group. You were called a a proselyte. So you kind of joined the Jewish faith was kind of the idea. In the New Testament, beginning in the book of Acts chapter 2, God began doing a new thing. That was the inclusion of non-Jewish peoples on equal footing with the Jewish crowd. Okay, this was a new thing. It was shocking to a lot of people. And a number of folks didn't like it very much. You mean they get to be in the room like equals? Oh boy, that was a real challenge. That was a point, as we'll see in a bit, uh, Acts chapter 15 and the Jerusalem Council. There were folks who didn't like it at all. God was bringing in the nations, see, as long foretold in the Old Testament. God was bringing the nations in on equal footing with the Jewish crowd. This is called, in the text we'll read in a moment, a mystery. That is, not something like Agatha Christie and whodunit, but a mystery as in something previously unrevealed. They call it a mystery. Okay, with that as a background, that I begin reading Ephesians 2, starting at verse 19. Paul says this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. In other words, outsiders. He's speaking to the Gentile crowd. You're no longer outsiders. You're no longer those people. But rather, you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation, what does it say? Of the apostles and prophets. He's going to say more on that. That there's a foundation being laid. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. It's like God's building a a building. He's building a whole new thing. The foundation, the apostles and prophets in whom all you also, he says, are built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. Now he's going to get more specific. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ, Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. Paul is called in the New Testament an apostle to the Gentiles, even as Peter is called an apostle to the Jewish crowd. So verse 2, assuming you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you or on your behalf. So, so God gave Paul a specific task on behalf of the Gentile crowd, the nations who were to come. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation. Stop. How did Paul know about this? Well, he just told you. We read this last week in Galatians 1, didn't we? Paul says, Christ revealed this to me. Direct revelation to him as an apostle. We called that not normative. Remember? We use the term normative. What's normal life for a Christian? And I'm saying that was not, receiving direct revelation was not normative. That was a descriptor of the apostles. 
So he's receiving direct revelation here. That's a mark of him as an apostle. He says, as I've written briefly, I'm back to verse four. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to whom? To his holy apostles and prophets by the spirit, this specific group of people. It was to them that God told about the inclusion of the Gentiles. It wasn't to everybody. This was a role of an apostle. This mystery, he says, verse 6, is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That was revealed by Christ himself to the apostles, who he calls the foundation of the church in verse 20 of chapter 2. Huh, the role of an apostle. I'm saying there was a unique group with a specific task. They were marked by receiving specific revelation And I would suggest that's the point of signs and wonders, as we'll see in a moment. I'll go to one other, and then I'll draw some conclusions, and we'll step uh, further ahead here. So I go to to 1 Timothy 1. How you guys doing? You doing okay? You still with me? Doing all right? All right, just double checking. You know, Bible college classes, seminary classes, it's what we do. And that's why, you know, everybody gets out of Bible college or seminary hooked on coffee. That's why. It's, it's like, I better pay attention. Because otherwise, if I daydream about lunch and what's going to go on the pizza, I miss something, I'll flunk the test. So you have to pay attention. So you're doing well. You're looking, you're looking okay, though. So First Timothy 1, last one of this section. I just want you to see it. Paul says it again. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God. Wow. By the will of God, he says for himself as an apostle. Here, by the command. I'm an apostle by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, he says, who is our hope. I love that. An apostle by the will of, an apostle by the command. Paul didn't just volunteer for the job. He was placed in that job, that role of apostle by God himself. So, I look to my third bullet point as a summary of this section, okay? Paul's extended and aggressive confrontation of the false super apostles. That's our main text, 2 Timothy 12. At the conclusion of that big argument, it has a serious point. That is, who speaks for God? Who speaks for God? With what authority do they speak? And, and may I say, uh, the authority of Scripture, the truth of salvation depend on this. They depend on the truthfulness of the source, ultimately God. Every now and then, if you, you, you will notice with me, as I do, in reading things uh, that are out there on different issues of theology and life, sometimes you will find people draw a difference between the Apostle Paul and Jesus. I don't know if you've seen this. If you read on certain topics, you'll see it. Well, Jesus said this, but the Apostle Paul said this. And after all, Paul, you know what you can do with I mean, Paul's kind of an old cranky man. So then there's Paul, but then there's Jesus. May I say, stop it. Just, just don't do that. That is an undermining of the authority of Scripture. That's really what we're after here. Paul identifies himself, as does Scripture, as an apostle, a sent one of Jesus Christ, who is speaking on the authority of God himself, so that what you have in this book is the very word of God. So you can say, well, Paul said this, and Jesus said, you know what? They, they speak with the same voice. That is the voice of God. So when you skip one or say, well, that was just Paul, he's cranky, you know what? You don't have a problem with Paul. You have a problem with God. That's something you need to think about. See, you disagree with him at your own peril. And all those who listen to you follow you. 
Wow. So apostolic authority, I'm saying it really is a big deal because the credence that you give to the apostles in their writing as found in the New Testament is the credence you'll give, the authority you'll grant to God himself. So walk carefully here as you differentiate the two. I'm saying New Testament apostles spoke and wrote with God's authority. Okay, next big category, again, boiled way down, I promise. So I'm saying then, based on 2 Corinthians 12, 12, I'm saying it this way, New Testament signs and wonders authenticated. Here's I'm saying the purpose. They authenticated both the message and the messengers. I'm saying in the New Testament, you will see a purpose for signs and wonders. Paul says the signs of an apostle were done among you with all diligence, all patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. And I'm saying what's, I'm asking, what was the purpose of the signs and wonders and mighty works? Was it, please stay with me on this, was the purpose of this, like in healing or raising the dead, simply, and I don't mean that in a, in a put-down way, was it only about relieving human suffering or being nice to people? As, as good as that is, to be nice to people and relieve human suffering. I would argue, no, not because it's what I think. I think the Bible tells you over and over again the reason, and it, that isn't the reason, simply to alleviate human suffering. Okay? those things often, miracles and so on, often did relieve human suffering. I'm saying there was another point than that. Or else God should heal everybody and no one should ever die. And that's called heaven. And we're not there yet. Okay? People trip up on this a lot. So I think there was a purpose to the signs and wonders in the Bible. And again, I've given you a list of of texts and I'm going to go here rapidly. So if you're going to come with me, gird up your loins. Here we go. Okay. So book of Acts, I'm just going to grab a couple things. I'm going to ask you for obvious things and they're there. So I'm going back to Acts two. This is Peter again on the day of Pentecost. So it's following that whole thing of Matthias being inserted in the apostolic group instead of Judas. So their numbers are now up to 12. Peter, 60 days or so after his big failure, he's preaching after his denial of Christ, restored by Jesus himself, as you read about in the Gospel of John. So Peter, again, is preaching on the day of Pentecost, and here is the middle of his sermon. So we're jumping into the middle. Uh, Acts 2, verse 22, uh, Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was no longer possible for him to be held by it. And off he goes. He speaks of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But before that, in verse 22, he says something about signs, wonders, and and, and mighty works. What was the purpose of those things in the life of Christ according to this text? What is it? It says here, a man attested to you by God with mighty works, wonders, and signs. When Jesus fed the 5,000, was it simply to avoid a backup line in the drive through lane of Burger King? Is that what it was? Was it just to give hungry people a lunch? Was that what it was? No, it was like a big road sign. You're driving down the road, big road sign, lane closed ahead. It was, a, it, was a, it was a very important sign. It was to make you notice something about Jesus rather than just saying, wow, he fed us lunch. Like some people said, as the Gospel of John will tell you, that was really, really fun. We should make him president or something. He could just feed us all the time. You missed the point. Who can do that? 
That's the bigger point. It was a sign. It was intended to make the ones who ate their lunch say, who is this man? Just like when Jesus calmed the storm and the disciples looked at each other and said, who is this? Even the winds and the sea obey him. That was the point. Who can feed 5,000 more than that with, with a few loaves and fish? It wasn't to feed your belly. It was a sign. And so here, I've given you that little phrase, attested to you, the signs and wonders in the life of Jesus himself was more than just about being kind. It was about evidence from God about who he was. A man attested to you by God with signs, wonders, and uh, mighty works. Okay, Acts chapter 14. I'm skipping other examples for the sake of time. If we were going to really turn it into a seminary class, we'd look at all of them, and you'd get a full pot of coffee going. You would. But these are just a few. Acts 14. Acts 14. This is in the middle of a mission trip with Paul and Barnabas. Uh, You know that because you've read the first part of chapter uh, 13, and you see it in chapter 13, verse 50. You can see who they is. So chapter 14 begins with they, that's who it is, if you read the context. In Iconium, it says, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Which brothers? Oh, Paul and Barnabas, right. Uh, So they remained for a while, Paul and Barnabas did, Apostle Paul with his friend Barnabas, speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Whose hands? I I, I guess that's Paul and Barnabas. That's who they has been in the entire text. The Apostle Paul and his buddy Barnabas. Wow. Okay. And then you go on. What was the purpose of the signs and wonders? Was it just to be kind? As important as that is, being kind is good. What's the purpose? Well, I would suggest it's because God was bearing witness to the word of his grace. As I put in your sermon notes, they were authenticating the message and the messengers. I think that was the purpose. You can read the text. I think that's the point. Now, to take this a step further, turn the page one more. Acts chapter 15, this is a report. This is a missionary report on the same event. So this is the Jerusalem Council I mentioned a little bit ago. This is the Jerusalem Council, and they're discussing this inclusion of the Gentiles into this new group called the church. And it's a real problem to some people because some of the Jewish crowd really didn't like some of those folks, those Gentile dogs. And now they're hanging out with us, pretending like they belong with us. I mean, racism. You think the Bible does not address racism? You better read it again. It's all over the text. So the Gentile crew now being included in the church and some of the Jewish people going, I don't know about those Gentile dogs, as they were sometimes called. Wow, you buy stuff at a Gentile stand, you go home and you wash your hands ritually, not because of germs, but because of Gentile cooties. No, I'm not making that up. Okay, it was the way you view it. Now they're coming to church with us. Can't we go anywhere without them? Yeah, they're your brothers and sisters. So there was a reason. Something new is going on. So now Paul and Barnabas are going to tell about their mission trip, this this inclusion of the Gentiles into the church. So they're discussing what this is all about. And it says they're listening quietly. Verse 12, all the assembly fell silent. They listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Then they, when they finish speaking, James, he interprets this and says, do you see what's going on? God is calling out from the Gentiles a people for his name. God is doing a new thing. What was the purpose of the signs and wonders? It was to say this inclusion of the Gentiles in the church is from God. 
So all you Gentile haters, knock it off and welcome your new brothers and sisters in the Lord. Okay? This was jarring to a lot of people in the Jewish crowd. The signs and wonders, I would suggest, was, a, was to validate God's message at that time. Now, we're going to head here in a moment to Hebrews 2. I have one more stop for you just because I think it's kind of fun. I want to stop over uh, in Acts chapter 19 before you leave the book of Acts. Just, just one more here. And it, it, it underscores my point that what God does at one time in human history does not mean he always does things the same way at other times. That's where I'm going. Okay, this is another text on this. So in Acts 19, starting verse 11, this is about Paul. Uh, it says this, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. What is grammar time here? What does extraordinary mean? Just grammar, English. I understand it's translated and all that. I got it. Oh, extraordinary means not, yeah, not ordinary. All the teachers among you, you were scared to answer out loud. You didn't want to get the wrong answer. I know. No, extraordinary means not ordinary. This was above ordinary. I mean, there's ordinary and then there's extraordinary, uh, super ordinary, out of the ordinary. It's something above. So God is doing miracles by the hands of Paul. These are not normal. These are not ordinary. This is extraordinary. Specifically, verse 12, this is really cool. Wouldn't this be fun? Wow. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Wow. Can you imagine? I've got Paul's hat. Run to the nearest hospital. This is great. You ever heard of this before? No, not really. This handkerchief and, and, and apron thing is, it, to my, my recollection, only here in the Bible. You, I don't think you'll ever find, even in the life of Jesus, you never read, they took handkerchiefs from Jesus and laid it on sick people and they were well. This is only at this moment that God was doing this through, through Paul. Pretty amazing. It's not about how great Paul is, it's about how great God is, his work, but it's authenticating Paul as a messenger and authenticating what he is saying. Wow, this is extraordinary. And, you know, may I say, uh, some would say then Paul, Paul uh, had this amazing gift. You know what? God did this through Paul, but, but let me clear up something. There's evidence in the scripture that Paul didn't heal everybody. And in fact, if you go later in his ministry, you find Paul giving advice to Timothy about stomach problems. He doesn't say, come on over, I'll lay hands on you. He says, drink a little wine for your stomach's sake. Uh, if you understand, it wasn't just about getting a good vintage, uh, but it was also because wine was used as a, as a disinfectant. Water was bad. They didn't know all the details about water that we do. And if you're drinking water from a, a cistern of some sort, it was very, very common. There was a certain, you know, you better throw some wine in there because the alcohol is going to kill the germs. Shake it up and wait for a while. That was a common thing. I just heard that in Israel from our Israeli guide because uh, we were talking about all the cisterns from which people drank. And you kind of look in there. You could see some. They still got water in them. You going to drink that? He said, yeah, well, you take it out and you pour some wine in and you wait a while. And the alcohol kills the germs and you don't die. I mean, we all knew that. I don't know why you all didn't know that, but all of us who live here had that figured out a long time ago. I don't know if you guys are all busy discussing what year it was. You missed the point. We're just trying not to get sick. So my point is, Paul tells Timothy, um, instead he's saying, come on over, I'll heal you. He says, take a little wine for your stomach's sake. Second Timothy 4, I think, is the place where Paul says, 
Trophimus, I left sick in Miletus. Trophimus had been with Paul. Well, Paul just healed everybody because he had this cool gift. Why didn't he heal him? Trophimus, I left sick at Miletus. Well, because that's not the way it worked, even then. Okay? God didn't heal everybody through the Apostle Paul. Certain things taking place. And then, and then I go to Hebrews, and I'll be done with the searching around. We'll go back and land this little airplane, or as the other analogy, park the bus in just a moment here. But Hebrews 2, then, uh, I just want you to see it again. There's a purpose. There's a purpose in the text of these signs and wonders as described for the apostles' ministry. So Hebrews 2, you read this. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. By the way, that's a warning text. It's intended for you too. Pay attention, okay? Pay attention. For since the message delivered by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just recompense or just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? That's a warning to you too. You want to go to heaven someday? The Bible says there's one way, Jesus. You planning to get there some other way? Not going to make it. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So he says, it was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard. Well, God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. What was the purpose of the signs and wonders and various miracles? I'm suggesting to you, it's under this category that we're speaking of to authenticate the message and the messenger as being from God himself. Well, I think that was the purpose. It wasn't just to be kind or humanitarian or to relieve suffering, though those kinds of gifts and abilities and healings would have relieved suffering. It wasn't the point. Now, my next bullet point here, can we talk I'm saying here we must be careful about what we affirm and deny. Making careful, making sure that what we affirm and deny lines up with Scripture and does not go beyond what is written. And I'm saying here, even we who are, and I'm using a cool theological word that you may know or may not, cessationists, I'll define it, even we who are cessationists believe God can and does heal people today according to his sovereign will, plan. Uh, The category of cessationists, I'm in that group, Uh, realize in our church, we don't have, even if you understand the categories, not everybody would line up in the same place. No problem. You're welcome here. But the cessationist category would be those who would see certain signs and sign gifts and so on as belonging in the apostolic age for the purpose of authenticating this new message of inclusion of Jews and Gentiles and the fact that this is from the Lord. So so I, I, I see certain signs and wonders very much in the apostolic time. And I would say at least in a different way today. Okay? Now, uh, what does that mean? What does it not mean? It means, uh, in my own life, I've never seen anybody laying handkerchiefs on somebody and taking their aprons. Uh, God can do what he will do. But I've also heard some people misunderstand the position that I would take as a cessationist and say things like, so you don't believe God heals? I never said that. That would be news to me if I discovered that. I actually do believe God heals. It's just not the apostolic gift that you see in the, in, the, in the earlier pages of the Bible. It's not the same gift. Does God heal today? I, people ask sometimes for the elders, pastors to come and pray for them, that, for God's mercy and even God's healing. Do I go? Oh, absolutely. 
And I have no problem praying boldly, oh God, would you, would you do this? Please? But it's a different thing than laying out of hands and the, the dead are raised. And the lay, I think something unique was going on in apostolic times. And I think that kind of gifting ceased in the apostolic times. That's the place where I stand. I could be convinced other places by scripture. But I I do not believe that God doesn't heal, to use my double negative. I think he does. Can God do miracles today? Absolutely he can, according to his will and sovereign plan. Is it the same as then? I think it's different. I think it's different. Interestingly, I, I like to read books, as you know, and I read, I read uh, all, all kinds of things. Some of, the, some of the stories that I read, I'm reading a book on miracles today, uh, I, I don't read the book and go, that's ah, not true, that's a charlatan, I just throw that out. No, I look at it and go, you know, if that's genuinely something God did, praise the Lord. Isn't that amazing? Thank you, Lord. It doesn't change my view as a cessationist, though, that certain things were done a certain way at that time. It doesn't change my view. I've got other books that talk about visions, as in, especially in Muslim-majority countries, like somebody saw a vision of Jesus, and people say, well, see there? What do you do with that as a cessationist? And I said, it has nothing to do with me as a cessationist, because God is free to do what he wants. And if he wants to go to a person in a Muslim country who has no other way to, to, to hear the gospel and say, look for somebody with this book, or whatever he says, praise the Lord. It doesn't change my view about what's normal. Remember the word normative? So I'm saying there are certain things that were normative then that I don't see as normative today. So I'm happy to discuss that, but I also want to be careful that what we, what we affirm and deny and how we define things, that we don't uh, try to make points that, that miss it, miss the point. God is free. He can do what he wants. But I think something was going on in the New Testament so that when Paul could say, the signs of a true apostle were done among you, it meant something. If everybody was doing those things, they wouldn't be the signs of a true apostle. They'd be the signs of everybody in Sunday school. Okay, how you doing? That work? Go to my conclusion, would you? The responding to God's word part. I want to push on two things, and then we're going to remember Christ in communion, and I think it'll be a, a beautiful connection here. So my first little bullet point there is please have confidence in God's word. The apostle Paul, Jesus... Have confidence in God's word. What the Bible says, God says. Jesus says, of course, Matthew 5, I have not come to abolish the law of the prophets, I have come to fulfill them. So there's, there's not a disjuncture between Jesus and Paul. They spoke with one voice, the authority of God. And then my other statement here would be, please don't be an over-enamored with stories of cool miracles. Actually, the bigger miracle is, is, is you getting into heaven. That's a bigger deal. Anybody being healed today will die again. They will die eventually, won't they? Somebody says, well, this person, this child was raised from the dead, et cetera, et cetera. Wonderful. That child will die again because we're this side of heaven. But getting into heaven is a bigger miracle than a rascal like you or me would ever darken the door of God's heaven. Jesus said this, Luke 10, 20. He'd sent some people out on a mission trip. They came back saying, this is great. People are getting healed and all the demons and all this. This is great. And Jesus said, yeah, that's great. But you should really be amazed at this, that your name is written in heaven. And if that ceases to amaze you, then all the cool miracles are missing the point. You're missing the point. Be amazed that your name is written in heaven. Okay, I want to pray 
for us. I'm going to, in a moment, read. I have their communion text. I'm going to read in a moment, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. I'll be there for in a moment. You don't have to go there, but you could if you like. But I want to pray. I'll say a word about how we do communion and why. And then we'll head toward a conclusion here this morning. Pray with me, please. Father, I thank you for this text. There's some arm wrestling to be done and some heavy lifting, I realize, in thinking through what the text says and what it means. But I pray, our Father, that you would, you would, you would strengthen our confidence in the Scripture, our awareness of the authority of the Word of God coming from your hand, from your voice, through the apostles. Thank you for apostolic uniqueness, apostolic authority. The authority wasn't theirs, it was yours flowing through them. And Father, keep us from treating the word of God and what it says casually or lightly or dismissing it. Thank you, our Father, for each person who's here today. Point us to Jesus. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So communion is intended to be a telling again of the story of Jesus. Jesus, the perfect one who took our sins on himself when he died on the cross. He lived a perfect life, had no sin of his own. And the Bible tells us how Jesus, after living that perfect life, was nailed to a cross by the hands of godless people, as Peter says in Acts 2. Our sin was placed upon his shoulders. He bore our sin to death by his stripes. Isaiah 53 says, we are forgiven, we're healed. Okay? So, so Christ then, having died, placed in a tomb, raised to new life, ascended to heaven, we're called to trust him as our sin bearer, to believe what the Bible says about this, that we are sinners in need of a savior, and that Christ is the only one who could be that perfect savior, and indeed paid for our sin on Calvary's cross. Now the Bible tells us that when we trust Christ as our savior, as we'll see in this text in a moment, our sin, of course, credited to him on the cross, his righteousness is is placed upon us, wrapped around our shoulders so that we, the imperfect ones, could be seen through the righteousness of Christ and ultimately end up in God's heaven. That is a stunning thing. Wow, that we could be forgiven by God, our sins forgiven, called children of God. So communion is, is a remembering the little cracker pointing to his body broken for us, the little cup of juice, his blood shed for us, and we're called to remember, remember. Don't forget. And then to live your life in light of this. So we would invite you, if you know Christ as your Savior, you're trusting him to join us in receiving communion today. The middle sections, of course, as you know, if you'd come down the middle aisle to the, uh, pick up the elements down here on the sides, if you come up by the windows and find those elements over here and make your way back to your chairs here. If you would like to serve someone near you or someone in your family, wonderful. If someone near you is mobility impaired and would appreciate someone serving them, please be aware of the people around you and, and care for those people who'd rather not make the journey themselves. If you'd like to just sit and let others get around you, not a problem, you can do that. But if you'd come, uh, take those elements back to your chair, I'll say just a word, and together we'll remember Christ. Okay? Would you please come?
Second Corinthians 4, 7 is the text from which we've taken our theme for this series. Paul says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. He's speaking of the treasure of the gospel. The jars of clay would be us, weak, easily broken, kind of messy. The treasure of the gospel. We have this treasure, he says, in jars of clay. What is it? 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, God made him, that is Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the story I told a moment ago. Christ became sin for us. He was the one who had no sin. So that in him, when we trust him, we are in him that we could become the righteousness of God and someday be with him and be part of his family today. That is a great miracle. So this little cracker we look at and we remember the fragile nature of his earthly body broken for us. This body that was our, bore our sin to the cross. And we remember him and we say thank you. And in a similar way, the cracker points us to his body, that little cup of juice, turns our mind's eye to Jesus there on the cross as his blood was poured out to death for us. He himself bore our sin in his body on the cross. And we who don't deserve it look to Jesus who gave his life and we say thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Let's remember him together with gratefulness. And the point is that as you would go from this place into your week, you would go remembering the main point. Christ, him crucified, his blood shed for you, the word of God, your guide. Would you stand with me, please, as we are dismissed with prayer? Our Father, thank you for those who've come today throughout the morning, each of these hours. We're grateful. Thank you that you, Spirit of God, can take the Word of God and apply it and mold us and shape us and, and allow us to wrestle with the parts that we struggle with. And you can point us to Christ and to obedience to Scripture. Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for not smacking us when we get it wrong, for gently pulling our hearts back and correcting us. Thank you for this. Thank you for the week ahead, whatever it brings. May we honor you in it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.